0: Can you hear me now? <laughs> well, welcome to this evening's talk. And I'm gonna talk about equanimity. It's one of the four abodes. Thus far, Gina has talked about metta, loving kindness. And Monty went over the hindrances today And tonight I'm going to talk about upika, or um, equanimity. So you might recall when when I talked on the first night about uh, creating a container. And with the help of creating a container so that we can um, experience things in a a non-reactive way, that's a big uh, characteristic of equanimity. And so we've been working on that container, not only through your silence and your, your, your effort and some of the offerings we've been giving you, the instructions, et cetera, et cetera, but the five precepts, and some of you have taken eight, but specifically the five, I mean, since, since we've been here, you haven't been killing, I don't think, I've been stealing, Uh, lying, engaging in, in sexual misconduct, or taking intoxicants. So this period of time we've been together, you've been laying the foundation for being a little bit more equanimous, and we'll talk about that later. But as we go through this process, it's important to understand not only is what we're doing here and now beneficial for us here, but also as you leave here, not to get ahead of ourselves, but at some point, you got to go back out into the world. And so I thought it would be good to talk about uh, what we call the eight worldly conditions, the things that, being um, not being uh, mendicants or monks or living in a monastery, because most of us live in the real world, we have to deal with those eight worldly conditions. And they are uh, two sides of a coin for each one of them. There's four sets. Uh, the first one i like to talk about actually is gain and loss, and the thing to understand about gain and loss, and this will tie into equanimity, the thing to understand about gain and loss is that, that when you have a gain, or when we have a gain, we're very happy, and it's easy to be happy when you're gaining, but when you have a loss, that's another story. It's really hard to really deal with, with the loss, but in actuality, even if you have a lot of gains, at some point you have to let go of that because you know, you know we, we do get old and we do die and so you can't take that wealth with you if it's wealth or whatever the gain is so the first pair you know it, it's pretty obvious the second pair fame and infamy you may notice some some famous people that you know uh, you can think of OJ Simpson as being one of them where he had a lot of fame Heisman Trophy you know, had all of this going on. And then he had infamy where he lost all that fame based on what he's accused of doing. And that's just one example. There's a lot of examples where it only takes a second to lose things. And I work with a lot of I work with professional teams, and I know it's the same thing. A lot of times when you have fame, you become a target. Or maybe you abuse your privileges. And so you see it all the time. I could just read the paper. I was reading about a golfer. I forget his name. But he said that he lost like $50 million in gambling. He made a lot more. But, but, and so even though he has the fame, that fame has a, has a price because there's a lot of uh, pressure that goes with it. Now I'm talking about maybe on, on a different level, but on a more mundane level, we all have this, this idea of fame and infamy, but it's usually uh, couched in the other set, which is praise and blame. Because some of us aren't, aren't famous, we may not be famous, but praise and blame, it's, it's something that happens all the time. You know, one minute uh, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, then the next minute you're biggest choke artist or biggest uh, disappointment ever. And I've had that experience working with athletic teams. And I have a name for it. I call it the hype. Because they hype everything up. That's how they sell products. And, and so for one person, and, and the Buddha went through it with the fame and the infamy. You've got to understand, the Buddha was recognized as one of the most revered and defiled teachers of all time. I mean, some people thought he was the greatest thing to sliced bread, and other people thought that he was awful. And we can go through you know, Jesus Christ, the same thing. You you can go on Socrates. I mean, he, these folks have uh, achieved levels. But then again, that's what ties into the 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 sublime uh, abode that we're working on. Because when we practice mudita or or um, sympathetic joy, that counters jealousy. And so, on some level, when you get up there, uh, you become a target. But people uh, get jealous, and so. If you think of it, of the eight worldly conditions, you think about praise and blame. I can give you an example. I remember working in prison, and I was working in this, what they call, substance abuse unit, and they had two sections. The first section was what we call the newcomers, or the people who had just got on the unit, and the second section was, the section was for people who had already been there for six, eight months, or whatever, and so I had this prepared... Uh, presentation and when I gave the presentation at the end of the presentation people were standing up and they were clapping and they were oh that was great and I had looked around and said did somebody come in the room because you know I'm looking there and I'm saying okay fine so I give the exact same presentation to the next group and halfway through they're looking at their watch. it's like when's this stuff going to finish <laughs> I mean it's just I mean it's the same exact thing but people have their own perceptions about things and if they have their views and opinions if you hadn't noticed, that that, that skews how you see things. So you can see, and that's one of the problems we have. We don't necessarily see clearly. Sometimes we see things that are wholesome as unwholesome and things that are unwholesome as wholesome. And so there's a process that we have to undergo in order to go beyond the duality of praise and blame or fame and infamy. And then the last one I want to talk about briefly is pain and happiness. Have you had any of that here? That is something, and, and it's interesting, because as we have the experience of, of happiness, or let's just say non-pain, I, I think about it this way. I don't appreciate the non-toothache until I have a toothache. And it's the same thing with suffering sometimes, or you know, pain. And Blanche talked about pain uh, being inevitable, but suffering being optional. And so, a lot of times when we have these experiences, we act like they're not supposed to happen. You know, like we're supposed to be happy all the time. And then some of us get conditioned so that we, we expect to have pain all the time. And so, that's part of being a human being. You're going to have pain, you're going to have happiness, you're going to have, well, maybe fame or infamy depending on uh, how you pose that. But even if you don't have that, you're going to have praise and blame. Because all, we all have an opinion about everything. We're always evaluating, and a lot of times we're comparing ourselves to somebody else. And so if you look at those world, eight worldly conditions, there's, there's an understanding that because they're two sides of a coin, we have to have a strategy for dealing with them so that we don't go too far one way or the other. And like I learned in the prison there, is my job is to go in and, and teach and... I can get hung up on, oh, they think I'm good. And then as soon as I start smiling, like, yes, I really, I really kicked butt in that last meeting. Yeah. And, then, and then I leave the, meet, leave the place saying, man, uh, what did I do wrong? You know, and in actuality, it wasn't about me. It was about other people and their perceptions. And so the idea is, the challenge is how can we approach these eight worldly conditions in a way where we don't, get uh, too hyped up and we don't get too depressed because of, of what happens. And so that's just the context that I wanted to offer it. And as a fact is, you may not experience those much here, but when you go home, it's definitely because you live in the real world and people are always wanting to evaluate. And, and, and it's, it's always a pecking order hierarchy. And so we understand that then understanding what we're doing now is not only helping us here, but it's going to help us when we go back. And so when we talk about the Brahma Viharas, and I, I mentioned metta, and now we're talking about um, upika, or equanimity, and I want to read a little bit about it, but the way I look at this, one way of, of observing this is metta balances anger and ill will as Bhante talked about before. Karuna, compassion, that addresses the suffering there's tremendous suffering all around and so Kamala will talk about that uh, later on in the week but from my understanding and from my experience what happens is the compassion at least the compassion I was able to develop for other people had to do with my own suffering and that I realized that just like me other people suffer Uh, it helped with the compassion but these are things that we cultivate all the time and they're interconnected. So by doing metta it affects compassion and by doing metta and compassion it affects sympathetic joy. So if we're dealing with anger, suffering, and jealousy and then we get to equanimity which means not having views and opinions and realizing that a lot of suffering comes from attachment. And so what is this equanimity that that I'm talking about? I'm going to read uh, a reflection. What I what I thought I was going to do is not really go by notes a lot, but just talk talk about experiences. Is what Bhante was referring to uh, earlier today was whatever beings there are, they are the heir, the owners of their karma, heirs to their karma, born of their karma, related to their karma, abide supported by their karma. Whatever karma they will do, whatever good or evil of that they will be the heirs and so on some level there's, there's a whole lot of shaking going on or a whole lot happening in a sense that, that things have a way when conditions are ripe, certain things are going to happen and so the challenge is how are we going to relate to those things and the whole thing about you hear me okay the whole thing about equanimity is this idea of, of not being attached To good, you know, feeling good or not feeling good, and kind of going through that. And so I wanted to read that um, reflection. So when I think of that reflection, it really says to me that that if I'm and coming from Boston, I'll use an automobile uh, example. If I'm driving down the street and somebody cuts me off in their car, and I can yell at them, beep the horn, and get involved with them, or I can just let it go. Not feel like I have to uh, respond to it. And actually that happened once when I was driving uh, in Cambridge and this guy cut me off and I didn't respond to him. and Sure enough down the road did the same thing to somebody else and they got out of the car and they were fighting each other. Could have been me. You know. So it's this idea of understanding um, that, that people have their own conditioning and it's not so personal. Although we take everything personally. It really isn't personal. It is, there's, there's natural laws that occur. Now, and the good news is about equanimity is that we can do something about it because there's latent abilities and there's, uh, and, well, latent uh, vices, I'd say, you know, these greed, hatred, delusion, but there's also dormant um, virtues, like cultivating the Brahma Viharas we talked about, mindfulness, uh, seven factors of enlightenment. There's a bunch of different things, but the reality of the situation is that there's a lot we can do. And so I find this a little bit um, difficult to talk about because it's not like you do method practice. Equanimity is you can do the reflection, but at the same time, a lot of it has to do with all the other stuff. Like, like the other boats, helps you get to a place where it affects equanimity. Um, and we talk about the ten perfections of the Buddha. The tenth one is equanimity and as a result of, of generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, love and kindness. And it's interesting that love and kindness and, and, um, and equanimity are uh, two also, two of the perfections. All of these things are interconnected. So you work on one, and it affects the other one. And then there's different levels uh, that go through that. And then if we talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the same thing. You know, you have mindfulness, you have investigation of dhammas, and you have uh, effort, and you have um, um, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and then equanimity. And all of these things, equanimity, you can do it a little bit, but a lot of it is a result of the other practices. The result of of not being attached to other things. And so all of these things factor into the the process. And there's also other ways of, of cultivating equanimity. But what I'd like to do at this point is share a story with you. About a year ago, I had... It was one of these weird situations. I had banged my head a couple of times and, and I had a concussion and so I had to go. So I saw my doctor and so she, so she sent me to, to get an MRI. And so I go to this place and so they, they put this kind of like football helmet on you and it's got like a glass cage and they put me in this little tube and I'm not a small person but the, the tube was about that big and when I went into the tube uh all hell broke loose <laughs> i felt like i wanted to it something got triggered and it was like yikes get me out of here and i'm there and i'm saying you know i'm feeling like i got to get out of here it just it just kicked up something and so i said to, to the lady real calmly um, could you let me out of here <laughs> 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 and and she said to me that's the calmest someone anyone's ever t- said that You know, usually they get out and they go and they don't come back or they have to try many times. But you were so calm when you did that. You just said, you know, could you please let me out of here? And so I got out and then, you know, I started walking a little bit, uh, breathing, pacing, trying to calm myself down. But there was this thing where I just wanted to run. It just triggered something really, really deep. And because of all the practice I've done and because of the mindfulness, it was clear to me that I could not sustain uh, attention and, and stay in there without going, going, you know, just going berserk. So I got out, I calmed myself down, then I went back in, and there was like 45 minutes, and there's this banging sound that happens, and I got through that. And what that experience said to me was that, you know, all the work I've been doing and the equanimity I had, it wasn't perfect equanimity, but it was enough for me to see what was going on and not be so reactionary that I was creating more, more turmoil and, and more suffering and then also developing the, the karma or the tendency for that to happen even more in the future and so then I realized but also what it did for me it gave me compassion for the people I work with when there's resistance because one of the things I had to learn was working with people resistance is part of the process so they don't show up or they're not into what I have to offer uh, that's where equanimity comes in. By me just being patient and just holding firm and allowing things to be as they are, really helps helps a lot. And so that was just one experience that that really um, gave me a lot of insight into this work because sometimes you don't know the progress you're making until the crap hits the fan, so to speak. And so and that happens because we're we're in the world and that happens all the time. And so there's and then one other uh, situation I had when I was working in prison it was a weird situation because prior to working in prison I was on, a ju- on jury duty and I was involved in a murder trial and it was a brutal murder and as luck would have it uh, I'm in the prison and I kept looking at this inmate and said I know him from someplace." and then it dawned on me that was the inmate that, that, that I was involved with although we had a hung jury uh, but he obviously got sentenced to life uh, for murder and he's in my class and and I have this young lady who's training with me because I used to run this prison project at the uh, the Center of Mindfulness in Worcester at the medical center and we're going in there and there's like 30 people in the class and we're in this like gym area but there's a big room and there's no one in there but myself and I had this young lady with me and as we're going in there I'm saying good morning to this to the inmate and this one, he walks by and he's like Fred Flintstone, you know, and I just picked up, he had this demonic energy, and so I kind of went into my street mode. Uh, and, and then I diffused the situation, but once again, that's the mindfulness, and there was a time when I had some feelings about going into street mode, because I thought I was cultured, you know, having meditated and everything, I shouldn't have to go back in that street mode, like, like don't start no stuff and there won't be no stuff. You know, but that was, that was my, my nonverbal communication to him because he might have thought that he was looking at me like, oh, he, you know, he talks funny and he's polite. But once I went into the street mode, he, he kind of backed off. And then once, once I deciphered what was going on, then um, I realized that an inmate had set me up and told him something that I had done that wasn't true. And, and I diffused it. But once again, but it was me holding firm. You know, the equanimity was enough for me to see what was going on, not reacting to it, but holding the space in a way where he was able to uh, uh, dis- disengage as well. And so, and that was interesting. And then right after that incident, they have uh, uh, IPS, which is the Inner Perimeter Security, come in there because I had notified them a week before that, the, the, that, that I had this person in my class whose jury I was on. And they came in. They were going to move him out right away. But because I worked in several prisons, all the ones you would have gone to, I said, no, nah, don't worry about it, I'm fine. And I felt protected. And one of the things, one of my rituals working in that prison was that for half an hour in the parking lot, I would do meta. And the meta was what protected me. And I needed it because when I used to go in there, those, those correction officers, they were a trip. I mean, sometimes they would let me make me wait outside the gatehouse for half an hour, or sometimes I'd be walking in and they'd just step right in front of me, just like that. And, and of course, I, I, I heard myself say, you know, can we go outside? I want to talk to you. <laughs> but I couldn't do that. So I just didn't, I was just, just like that. And then they got out of my way and they stopped messing with me. But it was this, this thing where unexpectedly things pop up and it was because of the practice, because of the idea of cultivating uh, these factors of mind. But the method has been huge for me and I see it as a shield because when you go in there, when I used to go in there, there's a lot of toxins and there's a, I mean, I, you know, it took me two days of meditating when I first went in there to come back to normal because it was so, uh, so invasive and uh, everything else and so once again these these situations where we're able to keep a little bit of equanimity allow us to use the mindfulness to know what's proper to do, what's appropriate action or, uh, to, to, to do, rather than to continue to perpetuate the reactivity, which most of the time has nothing to do with skillfulness, usually unskillful. So the prison experience was, was very interesting. So there's a couple other things here that I'd like to talk about in terms of my experience where I, I feel like there was equanimity. Now, I didn't ask for it. It just happened. And so I think this is the way this practice is, is when you work on this stuff, when you're able to, to do what's good, avoid what's, un, what's evil, and develop the mind, that there's ways that, that it manifests ourselves, itself in our daily life. And I remember when I was working in, in the corporate world before I got on this path, and well, actually, I was on this path, but I was still working in a place because in another life I was wild and crazy and I was in the, you know, drugs and and, and, and uh, mind altering substances which I think is very interesting now that I feel like I get way higher than I ever did before even though I'm not doing it now um, and I was working in this place and this guy was a friend of mine he left and he said well the new guy that, that's replacing me is, is is prejudice. so you better watch him you know." and this is a white guy telling me and I said okay so I work with this guy and because of the equanimity, because of the practice, I was myself and we became really good friends. That's happened several times with people where I didn't judge them. I didn't get into, um, oh, he doesn't like me, he's racist, so I can dog him. You know, I, I can disrespect him. It was, it, was, it was rare about, you know, like that, like, like that reflection. You know, he's the heir to his own karma. And so am I going to join them in the suffering by letting them have free rent in my head? So so it, it, my experience is, yeah, you know, it's, it's like the, these principles, these five precepts, the non-harming, the developing the mind states of, of metta, mudita, uh, karuna, upika, they impact the mindfulness, the right effort, which which I I want to talk about a little bit because in this context when I talk about right effort it's a certain kind of effort because one of the other things that helps develop this has to do with with the Satipatthana Sutta which um, which I don't want to talk too much about mindfulness because Larry is going to cover it but in actuality there's when you do the contemplations of the body, feelings, um, mind states and dharmas. Uh, it's interesting that a couple of the dharmas that are, we contemplate are the five hindrances. Another one is the seven factors of enlightenment. And and so when you, when you look at how do we cultivate this equanimity, then we start looking at some of the ways of relating to it. And I want to find that. That's the only thing I don't like about notes is I look all over for them. So the vine of bulge is one way to help which equanimity is part of it. Second way is the Satipatthana Sutta. And just talking about it very briefly, um, this idea of of the contemplations where they talk about uh, being diligent, clearly knowing, uh, being mindful, free of desires and, and dejection, which is kind of, so really what they are, they are... Um, the first one, being diligent is right effort. And so everything we do, and I reflect on my practice, when I used to come to retreats, I was such a warrior. I was so, so I had so much ambition that I didn't know about that my effort was always like this and it was like damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead. It was like uh, sitting through so much pain where, where this knee is probably never be the same. Uh, and I realized that with diligence, what that, what that really means is that it's a sustained application of effort. So it's, it's like it's not so much that it has to be, you know, real intense for 50 minutes, then you stop. It's more about it being balanced uh, and continued. And so the analogy they like to use is the loop, but since we're in the modern day, I'll use the guitar. Uh, when you tune a guitar string, if, you, if it's too tight or too loose, you won't get the right result. So it has to be just right, and that's the way our effort needs to be, because the next question that comes about, because I don't want to spend too much time on this, has to do with, well, what does this mean for us in here trying to practice? What does being diligent have to do with this practice? Well, what that means is there's going to be times when you do the metta practice where you're going to have difficulty, the hindrances are going to arise, and the idea is to continue to work at it, but in a way that's skillful, in a way that doesn't create Uh, More hindrances, or it doesn't create the tightness in your body because you're trying too hard. And I suspect that's what most of us do. We try too hard. So it's not about not trying, it's not about trying too hard, and it's not about not trying hard enough. It's about finding that balance of how much we can do. And so I have some suggestions or some ideas about how we may deal with this stuff. So one of the things that we practice once in a while, but it's, it's, it's kind of funny because I think if you sit down and say, okay, for 10 minutes of my sitting time, I'm not going to move. That'll probably be a long 10 minutes. But in actuality, if, if you form the intention not to move and, and then sort of get out of the way and not be so subconscious about it, you start cultivating this idea of okay let's say you say ten minutes I'm not gonna move and then you go five minutes and then you move the idea is not to get discouraged because with the diligence what I would suggest is okay the next time do it for five minutes and ten seconds so that you're, you're moving beyond your comfort zone and, and you're trying to uh, really not be aversive to to what's going on because that's what we do if it's pleasant we run to it and if it's unpleasant we want out of there and so a big part of developing this equanimity is to not be attached to either one but just to, just to hold firm and to be there now I'm not saying do like I did and sit through pain because sometimes the pain is telling you you need to move and so once again that's where the wisdom or clearly knowing what's going on comes into it and, and the mindfulness is, I mean, is just key you know, and, and, and in part of this equanimity, because there's one other experience I'll share with you in the prison, I was working in this long-term facility called Bay State, and I don't know if you folks remember the Willie Horton incident where the inmate uh, escape, and then they really got tough on, on crime. Well, anyway, they built this place in Massachusetts because of Willie Horton, and I had a class in there where all of the inmates were in there for life. Some of them had double life, so most of my people in my class were already in there for 20 years. And they had no, no way of um, getting out. Or anyway, we're in there and we're sitting and breathing and they have an intercom in there and the intercom comes on and gives them instructions. And so just imagine yourself being one of those inmates and your favorite correction officer, meaning you hate him, comes on the intercom and he's interrupting your meditation. Can you imagine the nerve of that guy? And, and what we learn how to do was understand that in the process of perception that when the intercom came on it was like Thich Hans' uh, mindfulness bell, just notice hearing <laughs> without allowing it to get to the place where it's unpleasant feeling and then there's the perception of who it is and then the proliferation of hateful <laughs> thoughts which perpetuates the feeling of, of, of anger, ill will and so just by, by understanding that with bare attention this ability of just being aware of what's going on without the commentary, without the likes and dislikes, which is crucial for this equanimity piece because that's what, what, what conditions us, the likes and the dislikes. Because that's another way of saying the pleasant and the unpleasant. And you know what you do when it's pleasant. You want more than it's unpleasant, you want out of it. or we want out of there. So it's this idea of understanding that that in our practice, just a little bit of Impulse control and gradual pieces can allow us to to have this ability. And then what happens when you're not moving and you're being with it? You get to see how you're stuck. And you get to see things and then the wisdom comes. And because you see that and because you get benefit from it, then your energy gets aroused or or there's more energy there. And there's more energy there, you you can do more. And then, you know, you start talking about the factors of enlightenment. You go from investigation, this quality of interest, the, to, to effort where, where, where you're understanding that, that is real simple. What you're doing in right effort by cultivating these, these Brahma Viharas, is you're developing wholesome mind states, which is part of right effort. And then if you're able to sustain it, then you're doing the second, the fourth part of that, which is the maintain. So the idea is to understand how to get, uh, loving kindness to arise when it hasn't arisen and it's also understanding how to sustain it once it has arisen. Does that make sense? And so it's the same thing with the other ones but the, but the metta, especially in, in this context has the power of really because it's a concentration practice it has the power to really have an influence on everything that we do and in terms of, of allowing us to have more equanimity, more appreciative joy and when we start thinking about we're all heirs to our karma. Then we realize this is not personal. That person is getting what they're getting because somewhere down the line, that that's the condition. The conditions are right for that to arise. And so for us, it's more about us paying attention to our karma and understanding that when we free ourselves, we free everybody. In the sense that we create more safety, uh, we we have this tremendous impact, positive impact on other people. So in some of the best thing we can do is to work on ourselves and to develop these, these qualities of mind that are conducive to freedom because that's what we're really talking about. I don't know about you, but I'm very interested in peace. And, and you know, So anything that I do, if I can reflect on it and if I'm not so reactive, and I have to admit I'm not always able not to react, but when I don't react, uh, the results are always better. And so I talked about uh, not moving. Let me see working with edges, I talked about that. Um, Impulse control, I talked about that. And also talking about delaying gratification. It's an interesting way to look at it because, oh man a cup of tea would feel real good right now. Okay, that's fine, but, but what if there's five minutes left in the sitting? Maybe you can wait five minutes before you have the tea, or go for a walk, or do whatever you need to do. So it's just understanding. This is not about me telling you what to do. It's about understanding how to develop the mind, how to program the mind in a way where you're not just going to and fro based on these impulses or these desires, because that's what it comes down to, because each time you, you give in to one of those desires, you create the, the opportunity for it to manifest even more in, in the future. So it's about not a, a, being attached to desires, not being attached to depression or, or Discontent. So, so I think I mentioned all of that. I know I went a little bit longer than I had anticipated, but I just wanted to talk about the value of equanimity and all, how all of this stuff, all of these things feed each other. And so I know I threw a lot at you, but the reality of the situation is, is real simple. Like the Buddha said, do good, avoid evil, and develop the mind. And by doing this metta practice, you are developing the mind. And you're also creating safety for yourself and others. You're uh, where we are. I should say we, because we're all doing it. We're doing the opposite of ill will. And then with equanimity, if we're not going to and fro, and if we are able to hold our center, and I know it's for athletics, I mean, I can't tell you how key that is, training people how to excel under extreme stress, under extreme pressure. And a lot of that has to do with self-control. Michael Jordan, he's probably the, the, um, the ultimate when it comes to that because he thrived under pressure. Uh, he has some serious samadhi. First time I met him, that's the first thing I noticed. This guy got some samadhi. And so even though people like LeBron James, even though some of you may not know what's happening, you get these younger guys that are bigger, taller, quicker. They don't have that mental development. And so they could do whatever they want, they're not gonna be the same as someone like him. And, and I remember reading about this guy, I forget his name, but he was one of those free divers. Uh, and he used to break records uh, going free diving, going down so many feet. And there was a tragedy because his buddy tried to duplicate what he was doing and he ended up uh, getting killed. The difference between the two was the mental development because this guy got into deep uh, meditative states and so it's all whole physiology changed, because I remember when I first started doing this practice, my cousin was uh, teaching scuba diving in L.A., and we used to talk about how when you're more relaxed, you use less oxygen and you can stay down longer. And so there's all these things that we, we are of spirit. I see us as spiritual beings rather than human beings trying to be spiritual. I see us as spiritual beings, and, and the spirit has a lot to do with developing the heart, as we talk about the heart and mind and just bringing, being more uh, connected to each other. So, I, like I said, I know I threw a lot at you, but this, this idea of practicing this time together right now is so crucial and so vital that uh, you can choose to be here and you can choose to be here in a way and understanding that you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for all of us and that it, it becomes contagious when everybody is really, really into it, and, and there's a lot of joy with, with renunciation. And, I, and I'm sure you had some moments of it, but once again, because of the way things are, as soon as you start experiencing it, you kind of know it's gonna, not gonna last. And so there's always that little hit, like this too shall pass. <laughs> and the idea is, you know, enjoy it while it's there, and when it goes, it goes. And I'll end by quoting Ajahn Chah. Who was a great time monk. He used to say, when I let go a little bit, I have a little peace. When I let go a lot, I have a lot of peace. And when I let go completely, I have complete peace. So i like to end with that, and I really appreciate you being here and your effort. So can we end with a few moments of silence? And I'd like to just offer one of the reflections uh, that, that have to do with the ten paramis or the ten perfections, and it's the one on equanimity. It is, may I be humble, calm, quiet, unruffled, and serene. May all beings be humble, calm, quiet, unruffled, and serene. now i was walking thank you for listening